Well, good morning. Morning. Um, as I was sitting there this morning, I just, I feel a little heavy today. I don't know what it is, but today I just feel like, this is not how I planned on starting, but I... <laughs> I just feel like there is a lot going on in the life of our community here. Um, I've seen a lot of really tough prayer requests this week, and I just, I don't know, as I start today, I am thinking of Daniel, who found himself in this unexpected place and feeling like there are probably a lot of you in an unexpected place today, and First of all, I am glad you're here. Um, I have been reminded this week of how helpful it is to have each other. Um, I know for me, when I have something happen in my life, one of the first things I do is send an email to my group who prays for me. Um, And so I am thankful for each and every one of you. And I think... When we face hard times and we're in an unexpected place, oftentimes the first thing we want to do is withdraw. And so I just am glad you're here and I'm thankful that we have each other. And as that song played at the end today, it just, that song really hit me. So yes, everything just ties together so well. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you, and I will not be shaken. As I think of that, and as I think of Daniel, who found himself in a very different place than expected, who found himself pulled from his home and had to put his feet on his firm foundation, um, building his life upon the love of God. And I think that is what our passage is about today. So um, let's just go to God in prayer before we start looking at this chapter. Um, Father God, I thank you for everyone here, Lord. I thank you that you have... um, brought us here together, Lord, and that we can be here for each other. And I thank you for your love that is our firm foundation, God. As Daniel was able to stand upon that in the midst of um, his circumstances, Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand upon that in the midst of ours. Uh, Lord, I pray that today would just be a blessing, and I pray that you would speak through this lesson, Lord, to each of our hearts exactly what we need to hear today, Lord. Um, We love and praise you. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so um, as we start the book of Daniel with chapter 1, I think this chapter is really important to our story as a whole. Um, First of all, it introduces um, our characters, and it sets the scene for the book. But it also um, introduces a lot of main themes that are going to come up and repeat throughout the book of Daniel. And I think here in chapter one, our main characters take a big step in faithfulness to God. And this step, I would say, is what fortifies them later when they face more difficult situations. 
this step in faithfulness gives them the strength that they will need later in the story as they face some very challenging trials, including but not limited to a pit of lions and a fiery furnace. Um, so I just wanted to start with a little bit of background. Betsy really gave us a great history last week, and I just want to pick a couple of key things to remind you of before we look at this first chapter. So first of all, as Betsy mentioned in Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah gets a vision of two baskets of figs. One basket is bad and one is good. Now, God, in what I believe is an act of complete sovereign grace, determines the exiles to be good figs. I don't think it's anything in and of themselves that makes them good, but it is God's sovereign grace that determines them to be good and to be part of his plan of redemption. So Daniel is among those good figs. He's among the exiles. And so this right away gives us an idea that the picture of Babylon we're going to have in Daniel is a little different than normally when we hear Babylon. Um, If you were with us when we went through Revelation, when you hear Babylon, it's a very negative connotation. You think of the Tower of Babel and things like that. But here, God is going to work in the midst of Babylon this foreign land. And in fact, he's even going to ask them to pray on behalf of Babylon, which is a huge thing to ask them to do. But Daniel, as we know, does that. Now, Jeremiah 29 is a letter written to the exiles in Babylon. Now, when you hear Jeremiah 29, you probably think of Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for a hope and a future. But when you read that verse in the context of what it is, a letter written to these exiles taken from their home in the midst of this foreign pagan nation, confused, they are reminded God still has a plan for them. So that is the promise that I want to start with today. Because I think that is the promise that Daniel would have held tight to as he faced what he faced in exile. As he dealt with being taken from his home, having his name changed, and so much more, he held on to the promise that God had a plan. So let's start by looking at the first two verses, uh, Daniel 1, 1 through 2, which gives us some of the historical background here. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So, right at the beginning of this chapter, we see who is really in control of this story. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, or and the Lord gave. We will see the Lord giving three times in our passage, each time being very significant. 
because Nebuchadnezzar was not the one who was ultimately moving the wheel of history. It was God. This is a theme that is going to be developed in this chapter and will come up throughout our book. God is in control of history. No matter how powerful the human leaders and kings appear, it is really God who controls history and moves things according to his will. Now, here we read that Nebuchadnezzar moved some of the secret articles to the shrine of his own deity. This would have been a sign of complete humiliation, not just of the Jewish people, but of Yahweh himself here. Humanly speaking, God's glory is being completely discounted. However, God's viewpoint is transcending. The narrator, throughout this chapter, pulls back the curtain a little bit to show us what's really going on behind the scenes. This reminds me a lot of Revelation and how the narrator in Revelation also pulled back the curtain and showed who was really behind the scenes working. God is really in control here. He is the ultimate perspective. The Lord himself was involved in the defeat of his own people. Ferguson, in his commentary on this passage, notes that Babylon is the place where Daniel would sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, like Psalms 137.4 speaks of. But the reason that Daniel is able to do this lies right here in the opening words of our passage. He knew that if he was in a foreign land, it was because of the hand of God. There is nothing accidental in the life of the children of God. This reminded me of what Betsy talked about last week, where she connected our passage with um, the story of Joseph, um, which I thought was a really neat connection. When Joseph sees his brothers who had sold him into slavery, he says, what you intended for harm, God intended for good, for the blessing of many. The same truth is spoken of by Paul in Philippians 1.12, which we looked at in church. I want you to know that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, he says. So, our story here today begins at the end of another story. As Nebuchadnezzar moves against Jerusalem, deporting our heroes of the book. But we see the narrator pull back the curtain, showing the theme that in spite of what it presently appears, God is truly in control. So let's keep reading. Daniel 1, verses 3 through 7. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine um, from the king's table. 
They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. I'm butchering the names, I'm sure, but it's the best I can do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So (laughs) here enters the heroes of our story, of noble background, handsome, without blemish. They are to be fully assimilated into the ways ways and wisdom of Babylon, stripped of their Jewish names, given Babylonian ones, and enrolled into the University of Babylon, where they would be given a world-class secular education. At this point in our story, Babylon is exercising control over every aspect of their lives. Honestly, this was a smart move by the king. He knew overcoming these people by simply military force would not be enough. If they continued to resist him, he would have to use more and more of his own resources. So instead, he employs Jewish resources for his own purposes. He weakens their prospect by taking the exiling the cream of the crop of their youth and prepares for the future by giving them a Babylonian education. Who better to help the rest of the Jewish people fall into line than their own nobility and royalty? And he uses several tactics to pull them away from the Lord. And I think these are significant because I think these tactics are often used today to pull us away from the Lord as well. Isolation from God's influence. Indoctrination into the worldly ways of thinking. Compromise with the riches of this world and confusion about their real identity. According to one commentator I read, it said the good life that Daniel was offered was intended by the king to wean him away from the hard life to which God had called him. Their names are even changed from names that incorporated the Hebrew word for God to names that incorporated Babylonian deities. Daniel's name originally meant, God is my judge. But I think we will see that Daniel does not forget his name. While the king sets names for them, Daniel does some setting of his own. So let's read that part of our passage, Daniel 1, 8 through 16. It says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. 
Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So first off, there are several questions as to why is this the stand that Daniel takes? What is the reason that he refuses to eat this food? Why is it defiled? Now, there are several possible answers. One answer may be that the food at the king's table would have been against Jewish dietary restrictions. Another is that it may have been food that had previously been sacrificed to Babylonian gods. It might even be a matter of whose food it was, resisting being drawn into fellowship with this pagan ruler. While all of these answers are possible, they still leave us with questions. If dietary laws, why no wine? If it's sacrificed to gods, then why would the vegetables not have been included in the sacrifice? It might even be that more than one of these answers applies here. However, as I went over this, um, what I read in the NIV application commentary really explained this Um, better to me and stuck out to me at least this week. So this is what Tremper Longman says. Daniel and his three friends are in a process of education and preparation for service. Their minds as well as their bodies are being fed by the Babylonian court. If they prosper, then to whom should they attribute their success and development? The Babylonians. However, By refusing to eat the food of the king, they know that it is not the king who is responsible for the fact that they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Their robust appearance, usually attained by a rich fare of meats and wine, is miraculously achieved through a diet of only vegetables. Only God could have done it. So I don't know if that is the reason they do that or if that is the result of it, but that's what stuck out to me this week. They seize the opportunity to preserve a distinct identity where they can. And sometimes smaller commitments made along the way fortify faith for the more severe threats faced later in life. By standing firm here, they gained the equipment they needed to aid them in the future. So as I thought about this, I thought about um, marriage. And uh, my husband and I have been going to home builders, and uh, we don't have kids yet, so we're kind of crashing home builders, but um, just gleaning any knowledge we can get. And uh, one of the things we've talked about is those commitments that you make um, to strengthen your marriage and to prepare you for when things get difficult. And so for us, it's been weekly date nights. And once a week, we go for a walk and talk about our week. 
Uh, we usually do that more than once a week, but you know, I mean, <laughs> regularly, once a week, talk about our week and weekly date nights. And this has been like our pattern throughout our marriage. Um, and so right now, life is pretty good and we have it pretty easy. But when we one day have kids pulling us every which direction, because I hear they do that, um, <laughs> we have this commitment that we've made that hopefully can keep us strong as we step into the more busy times and the harder times. Um, and so I thought if we do that in our marriages, then shouldn't we do that kind of thing with God? And uh, for me, I thought of Lent. And during Lent, we usually give up something or take something on. And that little commitment is something that's supposed to remind us of what God did for us during those 40 days. Every time we crave whatever it is that we gave up, chocolate or heaven forbid, coffee, um, then you remember, you remember what God did for you. You are um, thinking of it, and it causes you to um, strengthen your faith. And, you know, last year we did that prayer during Lent that was meant to remind us of um, God's presence with us in our days and things like that. And so that's what I thought of as I thought here of what Daniel does in making this commitment. He Um, is in not the hardest part of his life. I mean, there is some hard stuff coming, but he makes this small commitment that fortifies his faith later when he looks back and remembers, God is the one who has been nourishing my very body. God is the one who acted in Babylon. Um, I think that would strengthen him later when he faced harder things. And so here they are recognizing that it is the Lord alone who blesses our food in order to nourish our bodies, which gives a whole other meaning to giving thanks for our meals, doesn't it? We are dependent constantly on the Lord to strengthen and keep our very lives. And I think it is significant to note not only um, Not only that Daniel stands firm, but the way that he does it here in our passage. He does so with a character of gentleness, humility, modesty, and respect. Sometimes our faithfulness can be seen not only in our ability to stand firm, but the way in which we do so. This diet was private. It wasn't a public thing for them. When the chief official declined what Daniel requested, he didn't panic, but he instead approached it with another strategy to accomplish his goal. And it seems clear that he expected God to act in this situation, for God to come through. Here we see him trusting God's promises and trusting that God will act even in Babylon. And here is the second time where the Lord gives in our passage. God works behind the scenes, giving the chief official compassion and favor for Daniel and his friends. So now let's read the third instance where God gives in our passage. Verses 17 through 20. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, 
The king talked with them. He found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So here God gives them knowledge and understanding. Now, this does not mean that they did not study or invest themselves in their studies, but it means that God surrounded and prospered their work and is really behind their success. Now, of course, Nebuchadnezzar once again remains in the dark. He would be attributing their brilliance to his own work and to those who he had involved in their education. But once again, our narrator pulls back the curtain, revealing who's really behind the scenes working, who really is due the credit. Now we come to the last verse in our passage, and it ends rather mysteriously with a quick flash forward to 70 years later. Daniel 1 verse 21 says, And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus is the Persian ruler who would later overthrow the Babylonian Empire. This has been included here at the end of our chapter, and I think it has several implications. First of all, Daniel is at home in Babylon for a while. He's going to be here for a while. And secondly, we get a glimpse of how this mighty empire, the Babylonians who seem unstoppable at this point, who seem to hold all the cards, will inevitably fall. This great strong king who seems so powerful will inevitably die. This is a theme that I think will appear over and over again in the book of Daniel, and I encourage you to look for this as well. The kingdoms of this world fade away, but the kingdom of God is one that lasts forever. The kingdom of Babylon seems all-powerful right now, but it will come to an end. As Davis says in his commentary, the servants of God will simply out-endure the kingdoms of this age. So, how do we apply this passage? Let's bring it to a conclusion. The question we ask here is, what has not changed, even though we have been carried off into Babylon? The text of Daniel 1 answers, God. God has not changed. Once again, Davis in his commentary, he says, Sometimes God may allow hardship to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. Daniel 1 points us to the sovereignty of God. His people at this point may be thinking they're simply pawns in the hands of hostile forces. But when we pull back the curtain, the perspective shifts, and we can see a God who is in control behind all of it, even that which seems so confusing. Daniel resolved in his heart that God could still act in Babylon. (coughs) 
sorry, <laughs> and would be the one to care for his very nourishment. This one stand gives him the strength that he needs later to trust in God's presence in the pit of the lion's den. It would give his three friends the strength to say, I will not bow, but be thrown into a fiery furnace, trusting in God. It all starts with this simple resolve to trust in God's provision. So I don't know what Babylon you face today. I don't know what situation you may find yourself in that seems to not make any sense. Maybe like Daniel, you find yourself needing to remember that God is really in control. Maybe you find yourself somewhere unexpected, have a hard time seeing God's plan in the midst of your Babylon. And we don't always get the curtain pulled back. But today I am here to encourage you to hold on to the truths you know about God. Daniel trusted what the prophet said, that God had a plan for him. So you can trust that God also has a plan for you and will work wherever you find yourself today. We can trust in him. Let's hold on to that truth today. Even when things don't make sense, even when we find ourselves confused in an unknown and perhaps uncomfortable place, God is in control. If we shift our perspective, the curtain gets pulled back and we find a God who is sovereign behind everything in this world, and he has got you. So in closing... Uh, the song that I'd like to share with you is called Trust in You by Lauren Daigle, all about when things don't go as planned, or maybe we pray and we pray, but the answers don't come exactly as we hoped they would. We can still trust in our God. So let's listen to this song.